All right, thanks, Peter and Van, and good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for coming today. Uh, it's good to see you all, um, and we are excited to uh, be starting a new series, uh, sermon series today for uh, the first time in a long time, or I should say the first uh, Bible book series uh, for uh, the first time in a, in a long time, which will take us through uh, next um, March, end of March, so right up to Easter or so, and it's in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, which uh, we will explain a bit today, kind of set the stage for where we're going to be headed these next several months together. Uh, we usually give an introductory sermon uh, to a longer series like this or maybe any um, kind of book series, but especially longer ones. And so that'll be today. Uh, they're a little more hodgepodge, a little bit more uh, stage setting uh, than um, uh, other sermons will be, but uh, still we'll take the opportunity to preach part of this and, and not just explain terms and dates and names and facts, but uh, to collectively hear together what God wants to say to us, which is, this is what I'm like. This is what my gospel is like. This is what my son is like. This is what the church is like underneath my love and, and so forth. And so uh, if you're new to the Bible, a lot of the New Testament's written in letter form, which is kind of cool. Uh, they're actual historical letters written by apostles or early Christian leaders in the early church to real churches, historical churches just like us with issues, uh, sinners saved by grace and uh, needing instruction on what it means to uh, remember uh, the gospel and to be protected from false doctrine and to uh, assemble uh, together and gather together and, and learn and, uh, and mature and things like that. Many other things uh, as, as well. So um, really excited for this. We're going to dive in today to uh, 2 Corinthians 1 here in a second, uh, but I have some introductory things before that. Uh, I know a lot of you guys like uh, this stuff more than what I'm going to give you, so if you want more on uh, things like date authorship and other uh, introductory asides, let me know. I have lots to, I could give you, lots to read uh, if you would like. Uh, but a few things that I think does uh, kind of set the stage well, uh, especially if you're new to the Bible, but for all of you uh, by way of, of reminder. Uh, first, 2 Corinthians is one of the 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. So it's actually half the New Testament. Uh, he wrote half the New Testament. There's 27 uh, books or letters and books in the New Testament. And it's significant that they are letters. I was kind of saying this before, but it's significant that we kind of end the Bible in, in letter form. Don't skim over that uh, too quickly. If, if you didn't know, the Bible essentially begins with laws written in stone tablets that failed to save people or reconcile them to God, but it ends with love letters written in the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and and that, that did, in fact, save us. And so the fact that God communicates in different medium helps tell the story. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 3 talks a lot about that. We'll spend a couple of sermons talking about that movement from old to new and from the letter of the law to the spirit that, that gives life. Uh, actually, today we'll talk about this too. Every sermon really will be doing this. But just the fact that we have a letter written from God to us uh, through the pen of Paul, that it, it's a love letter. It's written in the blood of Jesus himself. It's full of grace and, uh, and promises uh, not demands, uh, is, is not insignificant. So um, a little bit about Paul. Paul's story, uh, Paul was a zealous Christian persecuting Jew, uh, but then converted to Christianity after Jesus appeared to him and saved him. Uh, it's an amazing story. I don't have time to tell today, but you can read about it in Acts chapter 9 if you haven't before. Uh, but years later, after his conversion in AD 49 to 51, he planted the church, started the church in Corinth uh, during one of his four missionary journeys. Uh, and then later, uh, a few years later, during his third missionary journey from uh, A.D. 52 to 57, he wrote both 1st and 
2 Corinthians. So if you're wondering if there it was a 1 Corinthians, there is a 1 Corinthians. There's not just a second. Uh, there's a 1 Corinthians, which we preached through here um, in 2010. So I know all of you were here and all of you remember that perfectly, that series. But, um, but no, we're going to, but we actually did preach through it, not on our website, uh, but it's a cer- certainly a fun journey for us. Loved preaching that book 10 years ago. Um, but he wrote, Paul wrote both the letters though uh, to, to the church, uh, to encourage them. We actually see in 1 Corinthians uh, that they, they had correspondence with Paul, which we don't always see in all these letters. Like they, like they wrote to him, asked questions. So Paul says things like, uh, about the matters about to, uh, which you wrote about uh, sex and marriage or about spiritual gifts or things like that. And then he says, about that, then he writes. And so there's correspondence there going on. Uh, Paul hears about these churches. He, started, he loves these churches. Uh, and the church in Corinth had a, a lot of communication uh, with him, apparently. So, uh, and actually, it's interesting, based on some clues within the, the letters themselves, it appears that Paul likely wrote four letters to Corinth. First Corinthians, as we know it, actually being the second letter, and second Corinthians, as we know it, likely being the fourth letter. Uh, but the two letters that are included in the Bible are the ones God wanted to be there. That's important for us to understand. The two that his spirit inspired Paul to write. So, uh, so remember that. It's, it's easy to be, to be reading letters like this and to be thinking primarily as though Paul alone is the author, but there's a divine author as well. And so we're not just asking ourselves what Paul meant. We're asking ourselves what God meant. And therefore, we're asking how the whole Bible speaks to 2 Corinthians and vice versa. That's huge. So if, if that's new to you, we'll, even today I'll, I'll be doing a little bit of that. Hopefully we can give some examples of that. Uh, But just try to, I encourage you as you learn to read your Bible to be asking those kind of questions, not as though the letter's on an island and as though meaning is imprisoned to what Paul meant, but what God wanted the church to hear, not just in Corinth, but uh, all of us to hear, even now, right? Uh, In this 2,000 years later in in Minneapolis, God wants us to hear this. And that changes everything. It's, It's less of a history lesson and more of a theology lesson for us. It's a chance to hear God's voice call out to us and say the same kinds of things because we're not that unlike this, uh, this church. All right, so thematically, lots, there's a lot to say, but just a few things. Second Corinthians contains some very well-known to some of you. Uh, don't feel bad if it's not well-known to you because you're not alone, but uh, some of you, though, uh, know these passages. Passages like um, Christians being likened to jars of clay. Uh, that's chapter 4. Or Paul's thorn in the flesh passage. Uh, and God saying to him, my, my grace is sufficient to you, one of my favorite passages uh, in the book. And, and, it, and it covers a variety of topics as well, like Christian suffering, the glories of the new covenant, reconciliation with people and with God, generosity and fairness in the church, and, uh, and much more. So um, it's going to be a lot of fun uh, going through this book and hopefully very instructive, but, but again, um, a, a time especially for us to hear God describe himself to us and to remind himself how much he loves us in, in a variety of, of capacities as we learn theology about salvation and about the church and about Christian living. All right, here's how I want to start, though. I want to start by looking at part of Acts 18 uh, that is the account of when and how Paul planted the church in Corinth just by way of background, but, but with the idea that what's happening here uh, is what some of the, the future recipients of 2 Corinthians would have seen. This is how the gospel entered the city. This is what had happened. This is, this is the, some of the initial uh, pushback that Paul got as 
a messenger of the gospel, and so forth. If you know a little bit about Acts, you know this is par for the course for Paul. When the gospel comes to a city, people hate him for it and, and people love him for it. They love the gospel, they hate the gospel. Um, and you see both going on. So I'm uh, not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to read it and make a few uh, comments about what we learn about the gospel and about the background of Second Corinthians from it. So let's read it in full to begin. Acts 18, 12 to 17 says, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the, the greater province or region that Corinth is in, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, who, by the way, was likely another Jewish convert to Christianity, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. All right, so lots, lots of amazing stuff going on here. But, but essentially, look, at how, look closely at how the Jews in Gallio, who's this Roman judge or proconsul, Look at how the Jews in Gallio, in different ways, but complementary ways, talk about Paul's preaching here. It's very revealing. I threw up a couple of verses here just for clarity. Verse 13 and 15. So the Jews start by saying, this man, which this can be applied to like the Christian message as well, like Christians are saying this. You see that elsewhere in Acts, but in this case, it's Paul, the first Christian kind of coming to this region. This man, this Christian, this Jewish Christian man, Paul, he is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So that means contrary to certain aspects of what covenantal life was like for ancient Israel in the Old Testament times and for Jews in the first century. So think of the phrase like that Paul uses elsewhere in Romans 3 where he says, apart from law, Jesus has come. Aside from it, he has come. In spite of it, even. He has come, or you could say to fulfill it, but that's another sermon. Or think they are promoting, these Christians are promoting a type of worship that bypasses animal sacrifice, bypasses temple visitation, and bypasses commandment keeping. They're promoting that. How dare they? And they're looking for backing. They're looking for support uh, for this before uh, the Roman proconsul. All right, then in verse 14, uh, picking up in 15, and 14 actually it says, so Paul was going to speak and clarify that or, or defend it or say, actually, yeah, that, that's true, but here's what I mean by that. But Gallio speaks first and says, if we're a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But then in 15, since it's a matter of questions about, and this is the key, questions about words and names and your own law, see, see to it yourselves. And this is what I want us to see this morning as we move into this study this last part significant, and, and probably something Gallio didn't intend because he's just learning himself about Christianity in a way and just sort of gleaning a little bit about what Christians are saying. Uh, all right, and so when he says questions about words and names, I think that clues us in a bit to the nature of Christian preaching and evangelism, the core of our message, what Christians were talking about, what got them up in the morning, what made them so excited 
words and names uh, to, to what Paul is saying here then. It, it was not just that he was promoting a type of worship that was apart from law, though that was a big part of it. We talked about that a second ago. But also what came in place of that law. Also then that it was a type of worship that had to do with, quote, names and words, which had to be referring to the name of Jesus Christ and the word of the gospel. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation's found in no one else. Peter prayed this a second ago. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind which, by which we must be saved. The name is Jesus Christ. The name is God's Son who, who became like us. He took on flesh to die in our place. It's by his name. It's through his name. It's by what he does. So it's a name. Which, again, it just in passing, this might not seem like much, but especially when it's in the wake of bypassing laws and the works of our hands and what we have to offer, this is significant. It's a name. It's by a name. By a, that's not our name. By a person. What he has to do, what he has to give, and what he has to offer, offer us. And so, and then to bring in Sosthenes here, who was beaten, um, you know, we would say, like Sosthenes is, is, again, another Jewish convert to Christianity as a Christian, like he was beaten in connection with the church's birth, so do we understand the word of Christ's sufferings to be directly connected to the existence and flourishing of any church, including Hiawatha's. And, and so at Sosthenes here is a picture of Christ in a way. He is, it's his beating. It's in association with the fact that he was beaten and the word of the gospel is preached because the preached gospel includes Christ being beaten and crucified for us, but in connection with his, his beating, that the church sprouts up and is planted and, and is, is born, and, and eventually, as we know, as the story continues, it flourishes. And again, that's our story as well, too, at this church. Hiawatha is here because Christ died 2,000 years ago and, and rose again. That's, uh, again not, again, not a small thing, right? God experienced death for us. He loved us. Uh, to, that, to that end. So this is how the church in Corinth was established. This is, this is the context, the people that the book of 2 Corinthians was written to. The preaching of words and names, apart from law. And Jews and Gentiles responded in faith. So Paul's not trying to Jewify the Gentiles. He's not trying to make the Gentiles Jewish. He's saying they both need Jesus. Jews leave the law to come to Jesus, and Gentiles leave paganism, or whatever they're leaving, their old lives, they're leaving that as, that as well to come to him. He's a third way. Good and bad people need Jesus. They both do, both sides, and every, every one or thing uh, in between. This is how every church starts. Corinth is, is not uh, an, an exception. So, so a really amazing story here. We could have looked at more, uh, but I wanted to start here because this is, we learn so much about the gospel here, but this is the gospel that Paul is going to start to preach again to the Corinthians yet again. This is, again, it's like the fourth letter here, but, um, but yet again to them to say, don't forget it, remember it, consider it daily bread uh, for your nourishment and your ongoing in the faith. That, that's what we need to hear as well. All right, so let's dive in today. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 to 2. Um, I'm going to reread this next week as well. I, I wanted to get to 2 Corinthians at least a little bit today. Uh, so let's just see how Paul starts the letter. And um, we will, again, we'll um, see how far we get. We'll come back next week, though, and finish um, much of chapter 1. So, but verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so many of you might know this is uh, kind of a standard uh, way for ancient letter writing to begin. Uh, it's nothing fancy. It, the, the sender is named, the recipient is named, and then a greeting. And uh, so even so non-Christian letter writing too uh, started this way. Paul is Christianifying it with his language here, of course. But uh, in, in one sense, this is a very standard, unsurprising uh, couple of verses. And yet, as Christians we know, and, and as Bible readers, there is no such thing as the mundane when it comes to God. All things are sacred, including seemingly passing introductions like this. Even here, the point's not to say, let's get past this stuff to the good stuff. We, we're already in the good stuff because these words here too are breathed out by God, the Bible says, and they're not just a passing hello uh, from, from Paul. And so um, to help show that and to help give uh, kind of a touch point to a few different Big themes we'll see later uh, in the, the book. I want to uh, kind of park in a few of these clauses. Uh, again, kind of in a hodgepodge way. They all do relate because they relate to Jesus. But um, kind of in a hodgepodge way, we're going to look at a few of these clauses uh, for our sake today, but then to prepare us for uh, these next several months together. And the first is this. The church of God, uh, that is at Corinth. The Corinthians are addressed as God's church. Or, or the church of God. So, again, kind of par for the course, right? That there was a church in Corinth uh, and some more scattered house churches in the region of Achaia, and they all belonged to God. We could read this as, to God's gathered saints, or, or we could read it as, to God's obtained ones. I, I think a lot, this phrase reminds me of Acts 20, where it says the same phrase, uh, the church of God, which that, that's, that clause there is kind of modified a bit with this second clause, which is, which he obtained with his own blood. God experienced suffering and death through his son Jesus. So it's Christ's blood that actually obtains and gets us from being in danger and from, from being in a state of exile and separation from, from him. All right, so on one level, though, we, we read that and we think, and we could think uh, about Hiawatha too or any local church here in the cities. Like we might call, call ourselves that. It's just a description of being a, a Christian church. And in one sense, that's true. In another sense though, at the same time for the Corinthians, church of God might be a surprising term for a church that, as some of you know, uh, for a church that is known for being the most defunct, messed up, Named church in the entire New Testament, uh, probably by far. Uh, so it, just to throw out a few things here, and I don't have these on screen, so just follow along here uh, just for a couple of minutes what I'm saying. But I want to kind of summarize what happened in 1 Corinthians, how Paul's addressing the defunct status nature of the church, how he's trying to help them heal and change through the gospel. Uh, some of you I know know this, others of you uh, have not uh, heard or have forgotten, but it's an important backdrop to seeing this phrase, church of God. I'll come back to that, but, but just for a second. Um, we start in 1 Corinthians with, uh, with this idea that, that the church was extremely prideful. They were outwardly bragging about what factions or theological cliques they fell into. 
inside the church, so they had an inordinate, inordinate amount of pride. Uh, there was backbiting, jealousy, competition, condescension among Christians, um, one-upsmanship in the church. Uh, it, it must have been a terrible group of people to be around, just on that level alone. That's how the whole letter, letter starts. Then we move to sexual sin. There was rampant sexual sin inside the church as well, including prostitution use. But also in one case, a man had sex with his stepmom. And not only that, he bragged about it. And on top of that, the church was too cowardly to do anything about it. So you have that going on in a different corner of the church as well. Then in another corner of the church, you have misguided theological teachings, like uh, some people saying, Sex is always bad in every circumstance. Right, Paul? Looking for some, some, uh, some uh, uh, patting on the back there to, to support that. Which is kind of interesting because, you know, like I said before, you have in one corner of the church, you have prostitution and almost incestuous sexual sin going on. Then in the other part of the church, you have the too conservative for Jesus crowd of Sex is always wrong, even for like married couples. Or they were saying that marriage isn't that ideal compared to singleness. So sex is like for procreation at best, but it's not. It's better to be single, better to abstain, uh, that kind of thing. So in the same church, you have those types of groups like disagreeing and they're both wrong, you know? So it's like, so that's messy too. But you have that type of disagreement and disunity uh, under one roof. Then you have Christians suing one another and taking each other to court, which, of course, is a symptom of not forgiving one another, uh, which is supposed to be kind of a big deal for Christians. Uh, then their church gatherings were chaotic. They were getting drunk on the communion wine. They were speaking in tongues uh, without anyone to interpret. There was widespread misuse of spiritual gifts, a great foregoing of love, which may have been the greatest stain on their record because without love, are we actually Christian? And then the cherry on top of this hedonistic Sunday uh, might be that many in the church didn't even believe in the resurrection of the body, which is uh, Christianity 101. So there was that kind, of, that kind of teaching going on too. There's a lot more uh, going on, but those are some of the big things that we know from 1 Corinthians that Paul writes to to correct them, to send them on the right way and teach them the right way to think about these things and, and to change um, if it's a lifestyle thing. And, and here's why all this is important. This is, what, this is why it's important background to know this is Paul still calls this church a church of God. Isn't that amazing? Not just a church that, like they were saying they were a church, but a church of God, a holy people obtained and gathered by God. Those types of people. So it kind of begs the question, like, would you call that church a church of God, like instinctually? It begs the question, would we do that? But also the question of, well, what is a church? What makes a church a church? And without having too much time to go into it today, I'll just say this. Being a church must have to do with something other than morality or the Corinthian church would be the first to lose the title. It has to be about something other than what we do and our morality and our level of goodness or the Corinthian church would be the first to lose the title, at least of God, but certainly I think all of it, church of God. It would be, Paul would write and say, you used to be the church of God, but now you're not. But that's not how he addresses them. And that doesn't, like, 
That doesn't mean to justify any of their issues. Paul's not condoning any of those things or ours as a church or individuals. And again, much of the book of 1 Corinthians is meant to, meant to correct and heal and, and change through the gospel. But it does remind us that churches are messy places sometimes. And at the core, we are gatherings of sinners saved by grace. Not museums of pristine saints, but hospitals for sinners, as it's been said before. We're gatherings of sinners being saved by grace, that Jesus' blood it, is sufficient to save the worst of people, even people like, like you and me. And that the Corinthians, at least most of them, still had a mustard seed of faith in Jesus. And Paul knew that. That's why there's still leadership there. There's still people that believe that Jesus died and rose again. There's still some gatherings happening. There's still, it's messed up, but communion's there. So there's still these marks of the church that are present. Paul knows it, so he addresses them as such. He says, church of God, not, you know, used to be a church, but you sinned one too many times for God, so you know, puts the rejection stamp on their papers or something, right? It's, it's, that's not what you see. You, see uh, you still see Church of God, which is, tells us a ton about the gospel. In fact, going back to 1 Corinthians again with just this, uh, this thing here, Paul says in that letter, same group of people, he says, you guys are called to be saints. You're called to be holy ones, which is not to be understood as saying God is asking you to strive to be good or to be saint-like, but instead called means given a new identity as, as saints. It's kind of like you see the word called here in John 11 where Jesus calls into a tomb where Lazarus is there dead. It says Jesus called, same word, called into Lazarus's tomb in a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out. That, that, that is a, a better understanding of what Christian calling is than, than to say you are called to um, to, to live a holy life as a Christian. as well. it's a secondary step upward. So God here is essentially saying to the Corinthians, and I'm looking at, chap, looking at the first book here and saying this, but it's, it's the same idea. It's like Paul saying in 2 Corinthians. He's saying, I am an apostle by the will of God, by his choice, by him wanting me to be. It's kind of like saying that with, with holiness and being a saint, that God is saying, that dead person is now alive because I've said so. They're a saint because I've obtained them with my son's own blood. And so it's apart from our works. Or think about it this way. You and I, as Christ, if you're a Christian, we're called to be saints, not asked to be saints. The Bible doesn't like ask us to be saints so much as just says God has called you to be. He's declared that you are without any precondition. He said, just like he said to Lazarus, you're alive, and so he is. Like he says to sinners like us, you're a saint, you're a holy one, you're a set-apart one, you're my son or my daughter, because I've said so, because I've called into your tomb through my son's shed blood. It's not a secondary step for Christians to attain to a higher level. Does that make sense? Mark Seifred says about this in commentary on this verse, this is really helpful, so I'm just going to read this. He says, being a saint, or he says made holy here, being a saint is not some second stage in the order of salvation in the Christian life, nor is sanctification a steady upward process of growth and development. It is decidedly not a matter of self-improvement. Indeed, it does not rest in the actions, plans, or self-discipline of the Corinthians and thank God our growth is not given into our hands. 
Instead, it's God's work that believers suffer as God drives them outside of themselves to Christ, who alone remains their sanctification from 1 Corinthians 1.30. Growth, this is the, the, the big part, growth is nothing other than growth in the faith that grasps Christ and his saving work again and again and again and again in the ever-changing circumstances of life. So just another way of saying the same thing, essentially, that our status as a church, our status as a saint, our status as a Christian is given, not earned. And our growth as a Christian is given, not earned. We're called into that in love. It's not something he sits on the back seat and says, try harder. I'm giving you this much, but now your job is to ascend. He's saying, I've descended the whole way. And every day, Christ comes down to us through the Spirit and fills us and changes us and saves us and makes his gospel beautiful to us. That's really important to see. A lot more on that later in the series, guys. I'm gonna, I could say more today, but we'll see that theme play out again and again and again. Uh, as he writes these words in this letter to the Corinthians. All right? The second clause, uh, a little quicker here, but uh, Timothy, Paul identifies Timothy as our brother, which is really cool. You know, always see this in uh, Paul's letters. Timothy is one of Paul's associates, uh, like a disciple of his. Uh, he became the pastor at the church in Ephesus. Uh, some of you know that. But here he's just identified as a co-sender not an author, but a co-sender of, of the letter and identified like, like a sibling. So and this, is, this is a spiritual sibling idea, to be clear. So he wasn't actually the brother. He was a spiritual brother, which means they had the same father, right? God's the father and they are children. So he's a brother in that capacity, like we talk about each other in sibling-like ways, right, uh, as a church all the time. Now, one thing we'll be talking about a lot in this series is how the apostles... And the authors of the letter are pictures of Jesus himself, the true author. Just like today, in a leadership setting in a church, we would say part of a leader's job is to image Jesus. They're meant to be reflections of him, uh, especially pastors, uh, because they're called shepherds. And so on how they guide and feed and protect, like shepherds do for sheep, Christ does that for us all ultimately, but God gives under-shepherds to be a picture of that. So if that's the case... For Paul to say here, Timothy is not just that as a pastor, but he is that in status as a brother, is not just to say spiritual sibling, but to resemble Christ, who is also, as the Bible says, our brother. Hebrews 2 says, this is one of the many places we see this come up, which, is, uh, which says, therefore Jesus... The Son of God had to be made like his brothers, or like humans, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. Because he is, or he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are, who are being tempted. All right, so big thing to see here is just the idea that Jesus had, this is a big word, this had to happen in order for us to be saved, in order, look at that last verse, in order for us to be helped by God, in order for, us to, for God to rescue us, he had to be made like us first. He had to become human 
in order to advocate for humans. He had to become what, like what he was going to die for. Otherwise, the whole idea of the exchange or substitutionary atonement couldn't work. There'd be no substitution possible. So he became like us in order to help us. He became like us in order to associate with us in every way except sin. So in a fully human way, he was incarnated uh, into human flesh. And in a fully human way, he walked the earth and taught and healed and walked that road to the cross to, uh, to die for our sins. And that's important to know because, not just because, you know, we, it's important to understand substitutionary atonement, but also to understand just the lengths to which God went to save us. You know, like, no other religion has this, by the way. Like, the gospel says God became like us in order to save us. Other religions say you guys need to go and become like God. Become like him. Be a better version of yourself. Uh, Learn from his characteristics and apply that to your life. That's not Christianity. Christianity says the opposite. God became like you in order to save you. It's unique, it's distinct, and it's the gospel and it's one facet of the same diamond that God came down, we didn't go up. God descended, we did not sin. God condescended himself, we didn't elate ourselves or puff ourselves up to be noticed. So the gospel's in that as well. And, and when Christ became a brother, you know, family bonds are not easily severed, right? Like, uh, a father and a son or a, a mother and a daughter, like that status is not easily, uh, easily changed. Just like our status with God uh, is not easily severed. It can't be lost. And so to bring all this back to, uh, to Timothy for a second, as a human, not a Christ figure anymore, but a, as a human, this is why church community is so important. All right, so um, there's many reasons why it's important, but when you and I know each other in the church and have friendships and are known and loved and forgiven and accepted, that becomes a picture of the idea of Christ being a brother. Like, I can say to Matt Warren, he's my brother in Christ. He's a picture of Christ to me, and I am to him. And when we can laugh and get along and uh, forgive each other and love each other and have common hobbies or read the Bible together or pray together— in that moment, there's connection and there's no distance, right? In that moment, in an imperfect way on a, human, on a human level, but it's a reflection then of the closeness we have with God. So the flip side of that coin, we, we can forget this because we, we're, just, we're like fish in water. We don't like know what water is sometimes, right? Because we just live in it, so we can forget this. But flip the coin around. If you don't have this, what message does it send? What message about the gospel or what false gospel is communicated if you don't have church community. And if they are meant to be brothers and sisters or reflections of the brotherhood, the siblingship of the Son of God and how he's come all the way to be family with us, if we don't have that, what's going to slowly seep into our brain, especially in the long run, subtly, sneakily, what's going to sneak into our brain is that there is still distance between me and God. There's still something to traverse because we're not around the Christ figures. We're not around the, the whispers and breaths of God and that, that the local church is meant to be um, a grace-pointing reality to. All right, more on that again later in the series. We'll actually see a lot on, on how Paul 
is a Christ figure here too in the book in his sufferings for the Corinthian church, in his distance from the church, but how he wants to bridge that distance uh, in many other ways as well. Uh, Timothy here just happens to be the first instance of this uh, in, in his title. Uh, but kind of have this way of thinking in mind as you guys read it on your own and as we preach through the book. Uh, these letters are not just meant to be letters. They're meant to be living, breathing play scripts of salvation as if Paul and Timothy are, you know, playing yet again the, the drama of redemption out in Asia Minor, in this case, uh, in, in the first century. So we'd see yet again how suffering can be a good thing used for our benefit, how God can use suffering to bring about salvation and goodness and comfort, uh, which is a big theme next week, comfort for people who are uncomfortable in our sins. All right, the last piece is uh, this final uh, phrase, or verse 2, actually all of verse 2, where Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, let me start with this section by, by just saying this. <clears throat> Words and images in theology matter. So words, images, and the right ones matter. And the bad ones are, are bad. They're, they're going to lead us on, on the wrong path. But using the right words and images clearly matter. Here they do for Paul, um, but, but elsewhere as, as well. I was actually last week, a lot of you guys know this, but we had baptisms at, at Lake Nokomis, and a lot of you guys were there. Some of you guys were, were baptized. It was a great day. But I was briefly encouraging the, the baptizees w- with this idea last week. Before they went in the water, I said that although there's much to say about baptism, the, the idea that Christianity is more like a walk down into the water and a washing at the hands of another than it is climbing Mount Everest with our own hands is telling and extremely important to understand. Christian life might feel like the latter sometimes, but it's important to know that in essence, Christian life is and Christianity is the former. It's a simple, gracious walk down into a water so that we're saved by grace at the hands of another So baptism shows that. It's Christ ultimately, his hands who save, right? But a baptizer's hands reflect that when they're lowered in the water and brought back up again. But again, words and images matter. Uh, All of Paul's letters, some of you guys know this as well, um, this is one one of my favorite forms of repetition in the letters is this phrase. He always starts and actually ends his letters too with a mention of grace, but All of Paul's letters say, at the beginning, some form of grace and peace. And what can be helpful uh, for us in terms of seeing how important this is and how beautiful this is, sometimes when you read the Bible, you think, well, what if that wasn't there? Or maybe in this case, what would the opposite of that phrase be? And so sometimes when we teach letters here at the church, we say, uh, notice that Paul doesn't say, the opposite of grace and peace, which would be law and war. He doesn't wish upon the church, I wish law for you, or I wish war for you, right? But instead, I wish the opposite of law, which is grace, the opposite of doing, which is receiving and, and believing. So, um, so instead, this, this is easy to skim over as Christians, but what he's trying to say here is this is the epitome of the faith that I 
that I want for you. Grace and peace in Christ, not law and war. What he wants is undeserved merit given from God and stillness before the fact that Jesus has fought all of your battles, you know, peace in that way, and not conditionalized moralism or an impossible to climb mountain and the constant urge to do more and be more and say more. And remember how we started the sermon. The Bible essentially begins, the first covenant does anyway, with Moses scaling a mountain and God writing laws into two stone-cold tablets that were already being broken before the ink figuratively dried. But the Bible ends with Jesus descending the mountain of heaven to become like a brother to us and to work for peace with his enemies, us. And this grace is better understood through love letters than it is law tablets. Love letters written in and with his blood than it is law tablets. This is the movement of the Bible. There's two testaments, not one. There's not one with different expressions, but just one. There's two distinct testaments for a reason. And God writes in different medium, or is it media? Is that the plural? Different media, different forms of artistic communication. The former didn't work when he wrote laws that mediated people in him, but the latter actually did, which was not laws. It was grace and peace. Grace from me and peace with God because I'm shedding my blood for you. And so this is what God wants, and I'll I'll end with this. Um, Paul actually says here uh, the, the phrase from God, so it's not as though we have to like take an extra step past what's, what's literally written here. But again, I want to remind you guys, um, don't read a verse like this and just think that this is what Paul said to the Corinthians or, or even secondarily what one Christian said to another group of Christians you know, 2,000 years ago or maybe even contemporarily that we might here happen today. That's not bad or wrong necessarily, but that's not the way to read the Bible. It's not the right way to read it. The right way to read it is to say, God is the ultimate author here. And so what Paul meant for the Corinthians is what God meant for the Corinthians is what God meant for us right here, right now today, in this very room, in this city, in this small corner of this one metropolitan area on this planet. God sees you guys. He sees me. He sees us as a church and he loves us and he wants us to understand his posture towards us as one of grace and peace. Whether you sin or whether you don't sin, it's grace and peace. Whether you have a good day or a bad day, whether you're a moral person or an immoral person, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, his posture is grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace undeserved merit, peace, no more enmity with him, no more battle. He, he invites us and woos us to lay down our, our weapons and to stop worshiping ourselves and what we do and to stop rebelling against him and to be reconciled. Uh, Spence read from that earlier. Um, reconciliation with God is Another way to say the point of the gospel, reconciliation means we're at odds, right? But, but again, for today and throughout this series, God is saying to us, things are okay now because of Jesus. God is saying, see my son's scars. Jesus is saying, see the tomb door forever lying on its face in the grass because of how 
decisively. I kicked it down on that first Easter morning. Remember that, believe that, and know everything's going to be okay. Like, it's hard, so hard, it's so simple yet so hard to do sometimes. But what if that was what we thought about, what God thought of us through Christ every day? And it's, it's so easy to default to mountain climbing, but that's not the gospel. It's, it's to believe in mountain descending by Jesus to become like a brother to us, to take on our flesh, take on our infirmities, ultimately take on our sin on that cross among criminals down into the, the heart of the earth to hell and back. Like he, he was plunged. That's his baptism. He was baptized into the heart of the earth then, then up again three days later. So because all of that's true and there's many other ways we could say it and we will in this series, you know, we, and because of, of what we know about the Corinthian church and our church, full of sin and rebellion and boredom and apathy. We're like, like the Hebrews uh, in, in the New Testament, the, the book written of the Hebrews, who had weak knees and droopy hands. Uh, we have that, right? We have sin. Uh, but because of what we know about the Corinthians and that this was written to them as well, we affirm that Jesus doesn't just tolerate us, he loves us, right? Do you believe that? That Jesus loves you and doesn't just tolerate you on your bad days? So because he loved this church, he didn't just tolerate the Corinthian church as messed up as things were and we're not that unlike them. Uh, but the Corinthians existed as they did for a reason to give us an example of that and to again remind us we are the church by calling. We are the church by blood. We are obtained by blood. We are not obtainers of God with our good works. And, and so let me pray for us as we close and sing one last song here. But, um, uh, and with that in mind, though, that'll be a huge part of our, our next five months. So.